the epistle of Paul to Titus. It's known as one of the pastoral epistles because he primarily wrote it not to a church, but to a pastor. And therefore, this epistle in its main context is directed toward those who are engaged in pastoral ministry. And in this epistle, he directs Titus to ordain elders in Crete. This was an important task, and this chapter signifies to us that these things needed to be set in order, for there must be order within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of that in 1 Corinthians 14 by the apostle, where he ends that chapter by saying, let all things be done decently and in order. And subsequently, the duty of ministers and elders and deacons and the congregation specifically within the church, but in their own personal lives, uh, there is this duty to live out this mandate for decency and for order. All things are to be done decently and in order, not merely some, and then we do things our own way, but all things are to be done to uphold the testimony and the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. Here in Titus, Paul is directing Uh, this minister, to the qualifications for an elder, and then specifically to the qualifications, verse 7, for one who will be a bishop or a minister of the flock of God. And the qualifications for elders and ministers are the same. They apply to each, because in reality, both categories are elders. They're ruling elders and teaching elders. And the elder, as we see here in Titus, is to be one who loves good men, one who is to be given to hospitality, and one who, above, among other things, holds fast the Word of God. And it is in verse 9 that I want to draw your attention this morning to a particular qualification, holding fast the faithful Word. And when we considered the doctrine of Scripture in the adult Bible class, I had this verse in mind for somewhere around the end of our study and I was to do the month of May, and around the end of May, uh, this was on my mind uh, to do a study on this particular verse and the application of the Word of God as we see here. And so, uh, in the will of God, we're bringing it this morning uh, in this way and in uh, this fashion, because it is an important text, and not merely for the minister of the gospel of Christ, not merely uh, for those who hold office, but as we have already intimated, It's an important text for us all to consider and to believe and to apply. There is a wonderful application to all of us. And again, let me say that the scriptural qualifications for an elder or for a pastor do not kick in or start when that man is elected or ordained to office within the church of Christ. The man is not to say, oh, well, I was elected last night as an elder, Therefore, I need to sort my family out. I must become a holy man. I must pray more. I must start learning how to be hospitable and encouraging and gracious. Oh, no. I've got three wives. I need to sort that out as well. Dear congregation, when we look at these qualifications, these are what we are to be as God's people. And the elder, the minister, is to exhibit these qualifications in his own life, as a member of the flock of Christ, as one who loves the Lord and is seeking to be a witness for Him, 
and is really seeking to be a good, godly Christian man. And the congregation will notice these things, and in the will of God and in the guiding of God, men will be chosen. But these qualifications, these prescriptions are to be already in place. They're to be already in place. He may be maturing in many of these and learning as we all are. We're not sinless. This is not a list of sinless qualifications, but this is the standard of godliness that by God's grace and through the help of His Spirit, we need to attain. Not sinless perfection, because when we look at all of these, there are times when we will fall and we will stumble in some of these matters. Some may be more than others in regard to these qualifications. But yet, we are by God's grace to desire godliness and to desire these standards of godliness. And therefore, in the life of a person, in the congregation of Christ, in the life of a man or a woman, but a man specifically who could be elected to office, we have this qualification. He must be one who holds fast the faithful word. Yes, when he is an elder and a minister, that must happen. But before that, that must happen. And these biblical leadership qualifications are simply the standard of sanctification that all of us should desire. Paul outlines here the type of minister uh, that is needed. And in relation uh, to yourselves here, Paul outlines the type of minister that every congregation needs. One who will hold fast to the faithful word. And Paul also here, because this applies to us all, outlines the kind of congregation a minister needs. One who holds fast to the Word of God. Not every congregation holds fast to the Word of God. And then there's conflicts. Not every minister holds fast to the Word of God. And then there's conflicts. The American preacher Samuel Miller had much to say in this text in regard to this matter. He said, "'Some duties are common to all Christians.' while others belong either exclusively or in an eminent degree to pastors and teachers. On all the disciples of Christ, on all of us, he said, is led the charge to hold fast the faithful word. And again, it would be ridiculous for us to suggest this text does not apply to a man until he commences his training for the ministry or becomes a minister. He is qualified to be considered for the ministry because this text is really the testimony of his life, what he believes, what he holds to, holding fast the faithful word. When I applied to go into Bible college, I wouldn't have got very far if it was evident by my life that the word of God meant nothing to me, that I didn't care for it, that I certainly didn't hold fast. And when other men uh, corrupted the word of God and taught lies out of the Word of God, I either ignored it or supported it or let that conversation continue. It was very, very clear that this text was not the testimony of my life. And dear believer, in the particular sense of this text, we are to pray and desire for ministers that will hold fast the faithful Word. And in the general sense of this text, each one of us is to hold fast the faithful Word. And the same also applies uh, to women. 
Scripture is clear regarding the male gender being the leadership of the church. That does not remove women from playing an important and vital role within the public life of the church as we know and as we have experienced. And how we will experience in the life of the church. And ladies, you are to understand this text also and pray for this holding fast in the church leadership, in your husbands or future husbands, in your children, in your grandchildren, and in yourself. Holding fast the faithful word is a mark of sanctification in your life. So while this text is directed specifically to ministers, there is an application to us all. And I want us to consider then holding fast the faithful word. Holding fast the faithful word. We see firstly our reverent attitude towards the word. Our reverent attitude towards the word. The faithful word is in view in verse 9. It is a word that we can trust. It is a word that Paul is telling Titus. You're to hold the word, but he describes it as being faithful. It's a trustworthy word. It's a sure word. And dear believer, this morning, the Word of God that God has given to us is sure. It can be depended upon. You can rest secure that if your life is built on the Word of God, it's going to be a life that is pleasing to God. A life that may not be successful in the eyes of the world, but from the spiritual perspective, it will be a life that is successful. We can think of young Patrick Hamilton of Scotland who desired to preach Christ. He lost his life, 23 years of age, thereabouts. He was martyred. He came back to Scotland with that desire to preach the Word of God, to teach his countrymen, fellow Scotsmen, God's Word, to point them away from the Roman system of Catholicism and point them to the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That was the burning desire of his heart, that they would hear what the Word of God truly said about salvation and justification in Christ alone. That was the burden of his heart. And he went to his death believing in the faithful Word of God. He went to his death believing that God's Word was true. His life was built upon it. His death and his confidence in death and his willingness to die for Christ was all built upon his understanding of the Word of God. He loved the Word. He had that reverent attitude toward it. And he gave his life, a young man dedicated to the Word of God. And dear believer, we have the properties of the Word of God. We can think of them. We've considered them already in the Bible class, inspiration, truthfulness, sufficiency. I want you to turn with me to Psalm 19. I think we've considered this before. Uh, We'll be brief on some of these points, and then we'll look at a different aspect. But Psalm 19, we see here that verse 7, the law of the Lord, the law, the Word of God is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure. All these things are contained in the Word of God. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And these wonderful things spoken of here by the psalmist remind us of the purity of God's Word. 
reminds us of its importance within our lives. It's a sure word. It's a dependable word. It's an inspired word. And it is a necessary word. And we mentioned that in the adult Bible class, at least on one occasion. God's Word is necessary for you and I. It's necessary for this world. God has given it to us, and it is essential to our lives. And when I gaze upon this world, I see what we could perhaps see and say is one of the greatest problems of mankind. And it's simply this. God's Word is not taken seriously. Oh, how this world would be different if individuals took the Word of God seriously. Instead of being filled with pride, they believed what Scripture said because God's Word is true. And you can have that pride with a small p or a capital P this month, whatever you want. Instead of being filled with pride, they believe that God's Word is true, and they lived it. How different this world would be. Instead of promoting and being entertained by sin, they believe what Scripture said, and because God's Word is true, they hold to it fast. Oh, how different this world would be if God's Word was our guide. His Word is not taken seriously, and it is not believed by this world. We see that. When I gaze upon the church of Christ, I see what we could perhaps say is one of its greatest problems. And what is that? God's Word is not taken seriously. The exact same problem. God's Word is not taken seriously. The same issue in the world affects the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, how men and women love to proclaim that they hold a Scripture. They believe Scripture. They treasure a confession of faith. They hold firmly to it. They hold firmly to what their church teaches because they believe that is what Scripture teaches. But sadly, in some occasions, in some, this Word is in the head. It's not in the heart. The practices of their life ignore what they say they believe. And that happens across Christianity, in Reformed circles, in circles that are not Reformed. And we are to flee from that kind of attitude. If we believe what God's Word, if we believe God's Word to be God's Word, if we say we believe it, if we say, well, here's our confession of faith, and we believe what it says, we hold fast to it, what happens then? We have to practice it. We have to live it out within our lives. If we reverence the Word of God and we believe it, then we are to hold fast to it. And in order to do that, the Word of God must be practiced. It must be practiced. And this thought brings us to the importance of sound doctrine. All in regard to our attitude towards Scripture. In 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 Paul says about the time, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Titus 1, verse 9, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught. And what is the result of that? That he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Sound doctrine. Titus 2, verse 1, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is a reality. There is sound doctrine, and there is false doctrine. And there are those within the church of Christ who will debate what I just said. They will say, well, there's just doctrine. doesn't matter about this soundness or this falseness. Doctrine doesn't really matter. 
as long as we say we love Christ and we follow Christ, but doctrine is at its basic level the teaching of the Word of God. What God teaches us, that is doctrine. I've had individuals who would have attended free Presbyterian churches argue with me that sound doctrine is not important. Not important. That is why one of the great problems of the church of Christ is we don't take God's Word seriously enough, because if we did, we would see sound doctrine is of vital importance. Vital importance. Being in a church that teaches sound doctrine is not enough. You must believe it, and you must hold fast to it. And if we have that right and that reverent attitude toward the Word of God, we will treasure His doctrine. We will love His doctrine. We will live out His doctrine. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, the passage we read from at the commencement of worship. Here the apostle refers to the nation that is corrupt and perverse in verse 15. His desire is for these believers to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. So the people of God are to shine as these bright lights in the darkness of this sinful world. And the nation in view is not morally strayed. It is given to moral corruption and sin. It's a nation that we're called not to align ourselves with, but to stand apart as lights within that nation, to hold forth, verse 16, the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. The word of life here implies that holding fast to Scripture and that proclaiming of Scripture as the word of life. And oh, how we live in this crooked and perverse nation. And what is the great antidote to this sinlessness, the crooked, perverse nation itself, and the fruit of it in the lives of those who are dead in sin? The great counter to it is to hold forth the word of life, Christ. Christ and His Word, the wonderful words of life about Christ that are found in Scripture. And therefore, to live for Christ and to stand for Christ, we need to hold fast to this Word of life, and we need to proclaim this Word of life. Do you believe in the Word of life this morning when we think of this crooked and perverse and wicked nation? This crooked and perverse world, are you part of that world? Are you in the very center of that world, living in sin, living against Christ, living against God? Yes, you may be found here. Nobody may have come this morning and grabbed you by your hair and dragged you to church. You may have come of your own accord and come and sat yourself in the pew willingly, but yet are you in the center of this world's sinfulness and its crookedness and its perversity, are you? Because you haven't trusted Christ. You haven't repented from sin. Attendance at church is not good enough. You need, as Paul is setting forth here, the word of life, that word that we as believers are to hold fast to and to hold forth and proclaim 
You need that word proclaimed into your soul. You need that word of life to shine into your heart by the grace of God to turn you from sin and to turn you to Christ. Turn from sin. Look to the Savior. Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Paul himself, the road to Damascus, saw the light of Christ. And he came to realize his life was filled with sin and iniquity. It wasn't a life served for God at all. He thought he was serving God by standing against these Christians and persecuting these Christians. He was doing the work of God, but he wasn't. He realized his sin. He realized his wickedness. The word of life shone into his heart. And that's what you need, dear sinner. That's what you need, Christ to shine forth within your life. In Philippians 2, we have characteristics of the nation that God's people are to avoid. Verse 14, do all things without murmurings and disputings, complaining and grumbling. The current generation, Paul says, they murmur, they complain, they dispute. There's this confrontational attitude. We're not talking here about genuine complaints and concerns, but we're talking about finding fault when there is no fault. We could summarize it as this. There can be a criticism and a concern that glorifies Christ because the concern is a legitimate concern and the concern itself does not glorify Christ. There can be a critiquing. There can be a concern that glorifies God. But then there can be a critiquing, a criticism that does not glorify God. And that's what we have in view here. Murmurings and disputings things that are not glorifying to God. And we ought not to get mixed up. If we are close to His Word, if we're holding fast to His Word, then there will be no murmurings and disputings that will not glorify God. Let us glorify Him in all that we do. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, For Many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. When we think of this world and the perversity of this world, there are those that are the enemies of Christ. The believers in Philippi had to contend with those who were enemies of the gospel. Paul was imprisoned because of the gospel. And in spite of opposition, in spite of opposition, we as God's people are to love His Word, we're to hold fast to His Word. Just because we're being opposed or persecuted or mocked because of Scripture doesn't mean we're to set it aside. We're to hold fast and to hold forth the Word of life. And that is the attitude that we must have. When the world oppresses, we don't change. Acts chapter 4 reminds us of this. The governing bodies, the council in that day, told the apostles, no more preaching in the name of Christ. They went back to the church. What did they do? They prayed, and they prayed simply for boldness. They had no intention of obeying. They prayed God would give them confidence to keep on doing that which they were forbidden to do. They knew there would be opposition, but they had to hold forth the word of life. The psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in mine heart, that I might not sin against thee. We sang that 
portion of Psalm 119 this morning. Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. And dear believer, if we treasure God's Word, and if we have that reverence toward the Word of life, the Word of God, it will be hid in our heart. That we won't sin against Him, but it will be hid in our heart that we will have that strength against the enemy. In Philippians 3, verse 19, it reads, Whose end, these enemies, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who mind earthly things. And Paul is saying these enemies have more confidence in serving themselves, in glorying about their sin. They're more concerned with earthly things like wealth and pleasure and popularity. But the things of Christ are to be what the Christian desires. Paul says that in Philippians 4. Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, think on these things is what he says. That's what we are to desire. But the world places these things of greater importance in God's Word. And dear believer, we're to rise above these sinful inclinations through having a reverent opinion of the Word of God. As we hold fast to Scripture, God's Word and the teaching of God's Word and what that truth means to our hearts will be far greater than the wealth and pleasures and sins of this world. This wicked and corrupt and perverse generation is like ours. And dear believer, what are we to do then? We're to place the Word of God in that central spot in our lives. We're to hold fast. What did Martin Luther say? The Diet of Verne's. He spoke about Scripture. If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture... If my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, that's what he wants, I neither can nor will retract anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. And Luther's conscience was bound by God's Word. The Word of God said, justification through Christ alone. Luther said, that is what I am to believe because God's Word says it. And therefore, I cannot believe anything else unless God's Word proves otherwise. His conscience was bound by the Word of God. And if we truly have that reverence for Scripture, if we truly love God's Word because of its truthfulness and its inspiration, maybe we could go back and preach all those Bible class sermons this morning and just keep on going. Uh, but a, that's a summary of what we consider these subjects. If we truly believe God's Word is these things, then it must bind our conscience, and we must then hold fast to it. The application of God's truth in the life of the Philippian church was to make them shine bright in this generation. The reverence for God's Word affected their lives, and the same ought to be true of us. March the 27th, I met a very powerful lump of ice. I put my foot on that lump of ice. I slipped. As you know, I wrecked my ankle. And the effects of that powerful lump of ice could be seen in my life. I needed crutches. I was in pain. I couldn't put weight on my ankle at all. I couldn't walk properly. I went to our presbytery meetings, and the meetings were up the stairs, and the foot was down the stairs in the basement, and I was up and down several times a day, it was, it was painful. 
it was painful. I was letting uh, men who were more elderly than I am go first because I was slower than them. Eventually, by the end of the week, I was in pain, and I let them all go first, and I went slowly behind. And, well, I'm supposed to be young, but it didn't feel like it. The, that piece of ice, powerful piece of ice, changed my normal routine, changed my life, albeit on a temporary basis. And that ice is gone. It's melted. Well, we would assume it's melted. The Word of God has affected and changed our lives. And our walk ought never to be the same again in a permanent way. In a permanent way. If we truly love and treasure God's Word and desire to hold fast the faithful Word that we can trust, our walk ought never to be the same again permanently. Permanently. Dear believer, desire that. Desire to love the Word of God. Do you love Scripture? Could you love Scripture more? Could you love Scripture more than you do now? I think the answer to that question in all of us is yes, because none of us are perfect. And therefore, because of our lack of perfection, and because of our sinlessness, or because of our sinfulness, not our sinlessness, our sinfulness, we can always love God's Word more. We can always love Christ more than we do. Let us desire that. Let us desire to have that reverence and that love for His Word. We may think we have been Christians for 20 years, 30 years, 50 years. But we can always love Christ more and love His Word more, can we not? Can we not? Secondly, I want you to see our holding, our holding stance toward the Word. Our holding stance toward the Word. We are to hold fast. We'll be shorter on these last two points. We are to hold fast. Paul is encouraging the believers in Philippi and Titus himself and us to hold fast the Word in this wicked generation. We're to hold fast because of sound doctrine. We believe in the faithful Word, as the Word of God, it forms the foundation of all that we believe and teach, and we are to stand firm upon it. We are to believe in the faithful Word as the Word of God that is commanded by God. God expects us, and it is our duty as believers, to believe His Word and to hold fast to that Word. And our belief in the faithful Word as the Word of God and our holding it fast is seen in holding fast to the great gospel doctrines. Men will say that doctrine is of little importance, but how wrong they are. How wrong they are. Paul said to Timothy, if thou shalt put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine. He was to remind them of doctrine, to remind them of the truth of God. In 2 Timothy 4, he was told to preach the word be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. He was to teach Christ and to teach the Word of Christ. And again, Titus 1, our text, tells us very simply, holding fast the faithful Word as He hath been taught, that He may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. 
First Corinthians reminds us to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. John reminds us, the Savior said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. When we think of this holding fast, it's a standing firm. Standing firm on what you believe, standing firm on what Christ teaches us in His Word. If we reverence His Word, if we love His Word, then standing firm upon it is the next step, as it were. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here we find the church, the day of Pentecost. They came together. They received, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The doctrine the apostles taught, a doctrine centered and focused on the Savior, they continued steadfastly in it. There was a holding fast to this doctrine. And this was a practice that flowed from their salvation. They were saved and redeemed, therefore believing in this doctrine and learning this doctrine naturally flowed. It was founded upon their Savior. It was a doctrine all about Christ. And it was a doctrine that fixed their sight. They were new converts. And the doctrine of the apostles revealed their new path. They were saved and redeemed. It revealed their new philosophy. It revealed their new praise. They praised God here in this passage. It was all new to them. And this doctrine taught them these things. It also formulated their service. They were witnesses for Christ. And the witness for Christ, dear believer, if you are to be a witness for Christ, you must embrace the truth. You must exclaim the truth. And you must be an example of the truth within your lives. And we find the early church doing exactly that. They held fast the Word of God. And they were witnesses for Christ. We live in a generation where the Christian holds himself fast to his own ideas and not to the Word. We live in a generation where some pastors swing from one position to another like monkeys swinging through the vines of trees. There's no certainty. There's no holding fast. Yes, our views can mature on some minor things perhaps. Our views can mature. But sadly for many, there's no certainty of doctrine. There's no holding fast. We're to know what we believe, we're to be taught by Christ, and we're to stand and hold fast upon it. And therefore, dear believer, in your family, within the church, wherever you have that influence, there is to be an influence for truth. An influence for truth. If someone came into your home and started to talk about maybe some of the liberal issues that have infected many churches, or maybe they spoke about the divinity of Christ, and they trashed the divinity of Christ, and spoke about the Lord Jesus as being a mere man, and His death on Calvary was just a big fraud. You sit there nodding your head agreeing, hoping the conversation will come to an end. Or will your reverence for God's Word and that holding fast upon it motivate you to say, well, hang on a second. I need to say something here. I need to stand and dispute with you 
to the glory of God because you're taking the name of my Savior and you're pulling him down. We're to hold fast, and we hold fast by learning the Word of God. We hold fast by desiring to know what Scripture teaches. We hold fast by knowing the truth. The Word communicates life. It brings freedom. It leads to holiness. It gives us joy. It is the way to fruitfulness when we think of Psalm 1. All these things the faithful Word does to us when we hold fast. Samuel Davies, the American Presbyterian, preached on this, and he gave instruction to hold fast. He said, we are to maintain pure evangelical truth firmly and earnestly. And he says, we're to do it mildly with meekness and gentleness. That does not mean that you're soft in your approach, but it means you're gentle. You do it kindly. You do it in a loving way. There's constancy and diligence to the end of life. This holding fast. It's to be a constant thing within your life, dear believer. You're to communicate that sound doctrine by public means, by personal and oral instruction. You're to do it in a distinguished, practical, and pointed manner. This is what Samuel Davies says. It's to impress the heart and the understanding, not the understanding, but the heart and the understanding. And it's to be pointed. And yes, that applies to preaching, but that applies to our holding fast the truth and defending the truth and speaking the truth. We're not to turn to a friend who's outside of Christ and say to them, you know, you know, maybe you're in sin and maybe, you know, you could end up in hell because of that sin. And well, you know, perhaps, perhaps your soul would be lost because of that sin. But, you know, there's a, there's a Savior and He's, you know, we maybe could save. There's no certainty. We're to speak pointedly. You're in your sin. Scripture says you have sinned. Scripture says there is a Savior. Scripture says believe. In meekness and gentleness, we're to be pointed. And we're to get to the heart of the matter. Davies applies that to pastors, the great object of the pastors to proclaim the truth of God, this faithful word that we will hold fast. He is to hold fast. The congregation is to hold fast and to build upon His preaching and His holding fast. And what he said was this, we all have a share in this work of holding fast. It's not just the duty of the pastor, the preacher, to make the congregation through preaching and prayer to hold fast. Was the duty of the pastor to hold fast himself, to preach the Word of God in that fashion to the congregation, and it is their duty to hold fast to the faithful Word. We all have a sure in this work of holding fast. That's what he said, and how important that is. Do we desire that, to hold fast to God's Word? Not merely as you or I, but collectively as the church of Christ. To hold fast to sound doctrine, warm-hearted doctrine, doctrine that warms our hearts, doctrine that brings us to Christ. And then finally, and very quickly, our godly actions based upon the Word. Our godly actions based upon the Word. Turn with me again to Titus, Titus chapter 1, the verse 9. 
that ye that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped because of the sin and the influence they have. And so these people seek to overthrow the faith in the church. And Paul states their mouths must be stopped, not by force. We're not to have an army of Christians holding swords or shields or guns or whatever it might be. But we have, as we considered last week, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And we're to use that sword to stop the mouths of those who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not. By sound doctrine, by the Word, using God's Word because we hold fast to that faithful Word. And we're to hold forth that faithful word. There's to be an exhorting. There's to be a convincing. We'll not expand on this for the sake of time. But an inward holding fast is seen in Titus. An outward setting forth is seen in Philippians. And we are to do both. As believers, we're to pray for the word that preachers and pastors would hold it fast and preach it boldly. And as we close, I want to say this. What would happen to this denomination if men began not to take the Word of God seriously? The gospel would be watered down, perhaps. Hell would be avoided. Sin would be avoided. The qualifications of ministry maybe won't be so set in stone. Men would enter into office who were unqualified. As things progressed, men who weren't converted would hold office within the church. They would train as pastors. They would be called to churches. Our opinions on LGBT and all of these social issues, abortion, would fundamentally change because there's been a great shift in our foundation in the Word of God. And now the pulpit and now the presbytery is filled with men who do not truly believe or hold fast to the Word of God and the Word of life. There's cold, dead, lifeless, Christless churchianity as a result. And the shining light of this church and this denomination would fade away into nothing. Is that your desire for the free Presbyterian church, for this church, for any church? I would say not. And you may say, well, that's quite a big jump from being conservative to setting aside every single thing that you believe. That will never happen. It's happened to churches. When we think of the Presbyterian church in America, they had good men. Men who came over from Scotland and Ireland. The first presbytery there was set up by a man from Donegal. There was a man who signed the Declaration of Independence, John Witherspoon, who was the first moderator of that church. When we think of men like Robert Lewis Dabney, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, James Henley Thornmill, all good ministers, part of the Southern Presbyterian Church in America. They joined last century with the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, and to cut a long story short, there were good sound men many years ago, centuries ago, but now that church is known for its liberal stance on doctrine, its ordaining of women and members of the LGBT community as elders and ministers. Wikipedia is quite judgmental. That's what Wikipedia says. That big jump has taken place. It took years. It took centuries. But it goes down to not holding God's Word fast as they ought to hold God's Word fast. And the same can happen to us. And the same, dear believer, personally can happen to you if God's Word is not held fast. May we hold it fast. 
May we desire the Word of God to be taught and held and esteemed. And may we seek the Lord and His Word to hold fast because we can't do it on our own strength. We need Him. We need Him. May the Lord bless His Word this morning for His name's sake. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for Thy Word. We rejoice in it. We rejoice in the faithful Word that Paul desired to hold. And Father, we pray that by Thy grace we would hold this faithful Word. Oh, how so many have personally abandoned Thy Word, or changed it to suit their own ideas. How many churches have done that as well? We see that even in this continent. We see that in Canada also. And Father, we pray that the seriousness of holding fast to the Word of God would not be lost upon us. We pray, Father, that as we go out into this week, that we would live for Thee, that we would remember that in our daily interactions, whether it's in business, whether it's in education, whether it's in the family, whether it's in the church, that these interactions be an outworking of us in our hearts by Thy grace, holding fast the Word of God. We pray, Father, that Thou would part us with Thy blessing. Continue to speak to our hearts. Continue to speak to those outside of Christ. May the love of God, our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the fellowship of God, the Holy Spirit, rest, remain, and abide with us, both now and forevermore. Amen.